I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me uh, for the program. Uh, look, we um, air the, the program in Washington, D.C., uh, and sometimes in, in New York City. Not, we're not in New York City this week. But, you know, the, the show streams live on Facebook. We put it up as a podcast. The radio stations, WBAI in New York and WPFW in uh, in Washington, D.C., not only do they air the program, but they stream the program as well. There's, so there's a lot of ways to hear this thing, regardless of whether you're in New York City or Washington, D.C. You can hear this show pretty much anywhere. I mean, we're, we're available all the and we're available all the time because uh, with, with, with it being a podcast, you can play it on demand. And of course, when we stream it on Facebook, it stays up and you can watch and listen to the show anytime you want there. So uh, again, I want but I do have to say that I appreciate having the airtime on WBAI in New York City and in um, in Washington, D.C. on WPFW. Uh, so, you know, and I've got to ask that, that people support these radio stations for giving me the airtime and, and essentially, uh, you know, forcing me to come in here every week and do a, do a show. So, um, again, support those those radio stations for, for giving airtime to a... Yeah, to a show that is a little bit different than everything else, and and, and I want to you know I want to talk a little bit about that. Look, I know that some of the things that I talk about and the positions that I take are not the prevailing opinions that you are going to hear in even in native media, let alone on the mainstream media. You're just not going to hear it. There is a almost a prevailing um, agenda to almost embrace assimilation. I mean, I talked about it last week when I mentioned that we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the Indian Citizenship Act. You hear a lot of Native people just have settled into this, this notion that, yeah, they're American citizens. They, they don't stand up to it. They don't reject this declaration. Because, again, when that act got passed 100 years ago, it wasn't put together as some path to, to citizenship that we could follow if we wanted to. It was essentially created uh, as a declaration uh, and an, an imposition. And in fact, this is 1924, mind you, that this very um, manner of treating an indigenous population or, or any population for that matter that is, that is under siege by another, <laughs> by another group, this was, would have been considered a war crime. And they, and they called it denationalization. It's the stripping away of the national character or the cultural character of a people and then imposing another national character upon them. Well, that's exactly what the Indian Citizenship Act was. But today, we will hear, you know, all over, quote-unquote, Indian country, you know, in, in many areas, including academia, where there are Native American programs, where they, they almost celebrate this Indian Citizenship Act. The other thing they do is they, they uh, you know, promote uh, the success of Native people by modeling them within the, the framework of American society. So Deb Haaland is, is considered a success. Somebody who runs for office is considered you know, a success. Somebody who's made it in their, yeah, and, I'm, and I'm not talking about things like entertainment because you, you bring your native identity to that entertainment. I'm, I'm talking about people who 
you know, who, who really have to follow the American agenda to be uh, in that in those business, especially politics. The other thing is the get out the the vote campaigns that happen. And look, I've native journalists do this. Every every native media outlet does this. Uh, many of the the again the native native programs that exist in universities. There's almost no one, and 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 that's what kind of sets my voice out. And I'm not the only one who feels this way. But there's just not we don't get the media time to talk about why we shouldn't be voting in their elections. What does that mean in terms of our claim to our own sovereignty and autonomy if we are willingly or even sometimes fighting for this, you know, this, this voting right to vote in an American or state or local other non-native elections? I mean, what does it say about us? Are we really autonomous? Are we, are we really sovereign if we're, if we're fighting to be a part of the American system? Or if we're running for those jobs, or or seeking the appointment of as judges, or you know, cabinet secretary, I mean, it's like we're joining the other side, and and I realize that that the people do have mixed feelings about it. So, but so what I'm trying to do is offer at least an alternative view of this, and this debate happens nowhere. So when I say that. By listening to this program, you're going to hear something you haven't heard anywhere else. That's what I'm talking about. There are very few examples where an honest debate about the pros and cons of Native people voting in, in U.S. elections is, even, is ever parsed out and what it really means. You know, one of the things that one of the hangups I have with it specifically, especially for Native people who live on Native territories, is even the idea of registering for the draft I'm sorry, the draft, registering for the vote, kind of the same thing, I guess, in a way. Uh, registering for the vote, you have to essentially s suggest or, or comply with this notion that where you live is in the state that, that manages those, uh, that, those um, voter registration forms. So if you live on, in Pine Ridge, you're gonna, and, you, and you're going to put your address down, you're going to say, yeah, where I live is, uh, you know, is a part of the state. If you live out here in, in Seneca territory, you're going to say, no, we're, we're part of New York State. I don't think that, that that's appropriate. And, and the thing is, even in looking at someplace like North Dakota, where they, where they started forbidding Native people who were trying to register from using appeal boxes, no, we want to know exactly where you live. We want your, your residence. We want your, your physical address. Well, why is that? Why did, does North Dakota or any other state require us to, to fill out a form that says where we live is a part of the state that, you know, uh, that surrounds us? Because, you know, for many of us, look, I live in Seneca territory. I don't, believe, I don't suggest that I live in New York State. I live on the sovereign lands of the Seneca Nation. And the, and the state may surround these lands. But that's not the same thing as saying that I'm a New York State resident or I'm an American citizen. So, again, I know that what I'm offering in, this, in these conversations may seem a little farther out there, like, like I'm part of the fringe or something like that. I don't think it's, it's as far out there as what people, uh, other people would suggest. I just think that what's happened, at least to those voices that do get airtime, to those... To those um, uh, course studies and those and those media outlets. I think they are just bent on just complying with this imposition of American citizenship and 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 where we sit within those the, those rungs of American society. And I'm saying no. I, I'm 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 fighting for sovereignty. I'm fighting for distinction and autonomy. So 
it's a little bit of a different message. All right, hey, I got to mention that, uh, you know, the mascot issue is uh, is in the news again because the Kansas City football team with their native mascot not only went to the Super Bowl but won the Super Bowl. Of course, I don't even know how to address the idea that uh, the celebration for that win turns into a mass shooting as, as, uh, in a parade. I mean, that's that's another show. I'm not even going to address the mass shooting thing, but... Um, God bless America. So there you have it. I mean, so, but there are people who have opposed this mascot issue. And look, we have been successful as a group and with help even from Black Lives Matter in getting rid of the Washington uh, football mascot. We have been successful at at getting the Cleveland baseball team to, you know, to eliminate its mascot. But there's still some out there. There's still the Atlanta Braves. There's still the Kansas City Chiefs. And there's still the uh, the Chicago Blackhawks. So there's still one team in each of the major sports leagues that uh, that that we we still have issue with. I gotta thank all of the people who made it to Las Vegas, and I'll mention that briefly too, to where the uh, that hosted the Super Bowl uh, to go there and protest the the name of the of the Kansas City team. And you know, my friend Julie Dye in particular, you know, she's. You know, we've worked together over the years, and, uh, and and the fact that she, you know, she's managed to to get out there to be a part of that protest. One of the things that happened there, by the way, I don't know if any of you recall, but a month or so back, um, a father and son uh, made news because they kind of got called out because the the father had the father didn't play dress up, but he had his son play dress up with a headdress and 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 face paint. And half of his face was red face, and half of his face was black face. And the crazy part about it is they seemed like they were suggesting that it was unfair um, to, to call him out for blackface because, for one thing, only half of his face was black, and it wasn't about um, mocking black people. No, it wasn't. Blackface or, or, or red face, whatever the paint was, you were mocking Native people. And... And they made it sound like somehow the media had jumped all over this little boy and was picking on him. And no, it's, it's the father's fault. But here's the irony. So Julie had uh, contacted those of us who, who work with her and said, look, I ran into that little boy with a face paint. And she showed a picture. It doesn't have blackface on it anymore. It's, it was, I think it was white, red, and yellow. So the, the colors essentially associated with the, with the Kansas City football team's uniforms and that kind of stuff. So it's it's as if by taking the black half of his black face off and keeping the other face paint on, which was still part of you know the headdress and the and the 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 playing Indian thing, that somehow it was less racist. And it's like, so was this about making white people feel more comfortable because they weren't going to offend black people, but you're still okay with mocking native people? I mean, it's it, it's absurd on a on a bunch of different levels. But uh, hey, the other thing I need to mention is. Last month, uh, there was a court case that was filed, I think, in, I don't know, the, the end of last year by the, this, this group that I've talked about or referenced or before that, that runs around claiming to be Native and being a Native voice, a legitimate Native voice on the mascot issue. They always team up with white people and, and these teams with mascots, and they, they basically oppose the overwhelming majority of Native people who really, look... They really oppose this thing. And, and I'm not saying all Native people do, but but a majority of Native people do. And especially some of the more egregious names like 
savages and in the use of warriors and um, and and uh, and and redskin. Uh, but they sued. They were suing NCAI, the National Congress of the American Indian, uh, claiming that they had conspired with the Washington football team to to have that name removed. And they tried to sue them in the North Dakota District uh, U.S. District Court. And um, and just this last month, the, the the case got thrown out. It was dismissed with prejudice. And what that means with prejudice is that not only are we telling you to get the hell out of here, we're saying don't ever come back. You know, so they can't refile this thing. Um, and it's just another example of this group. And they call themselves the Native American Guardians. We call them Nagats or Naga. Um, and they, um, they, they lose every place they go. They tried to challenge the, the statewide ban in Colorado and lost. Every place they go, they, they lose. And when a, a community does push back and they, and they elicit you know, some sort of help from Naga and they, and they claim, oh, look, we have Native people who think it's okay. They, they get undue credit for, uh, for what these towns are. Look, these, these are white people who are going to do what white people do. Yeah, the fact that they use this, use this organization as some sort of means to suggest that not all Native people are opposed to mascots. Yeah, they, they're using them. But these, this isn't an agenda that this group that are, that are mostly frauds, some of them are part Native or, or have, have Native ancestry, but most of them are frauds. Uh, and they all starkly oppose even the nations they claim to represent, because almost every nation and every Native organization has condemned the practice. But, uh, yeah, so they got thrown out of court. They lost again, as, uh, as this group always does. And um, I, I hadn't seen the news when, when it got thrown out last month, so I'm, I'm mentioning now uh, on the tail end of, uh, um, of some of you know, what, you know, what transpires with the, with the Kansas City football team. Um, and again, I, you know, I'm sympathetic to all those people who were injured by the mass shooting at the, you know, victory parade that they were, uh, they were having, I think just yesterday. Um, it's, it's absurd and insane that the United States has the level of gun violence that it does, but you know, this is, this is part of the culture that goes back to arming people for, you know, chasing down escaped slaves and for, you know, um, having, you know, hostile engagement with Native people. That's where the, the whole um, Second Amendment thing comes from, for those of you who don't know. It had nothing to do with really arming its citizenry to prevent an invasion or, or tyranny. Um, yeah, it says that kind of in the Second Amendment, but um, it, it really was about, it was, it was really about pursuing runaway slaves and, and having the weaponry to control a massive amount, a few people to control um, a bunch of enslaved people, um, and, and to have a military advantage over the people they were stealing land from. So, um, look, most of what I wanted to talk about today, we, we've heard a lot over the years about this notion of activist judges and those judges who are legislating from the bench as if this is some sort of new phenomenon. And I just got to say, I mean, look, I, I, this is some of the material that's covered in Peter Dorico's book, uh, um, uh, Anti-Indian Law, uh, The Legal Entrapment of, uh, of Native People. Um, and, you know, and, and some of this came from me writing a paper this, this past week on defending Native-to-Native trade, which, which almost made me have to dig up some of these legal doctrines um, that are always used against us. And, and the, 
important thing that I think is worth mentioning is all of the legal doctrines that have been used against us, and I'm talking about the doctrine of Christian discovery, this notion that we are wards of the state or the, the plenary powers of Congress to, to regulate every aspect of Native lives, all of those legal doctrines, plenary power doctrine, doctrine of Christian discovery, and the, the, uh, um, the federal trust responsibility, the federal trust doctrine, none of those are based on rule of law. And none of them have any legitimate foundation from the Constitution of the United States. So a country that, that prides itself on this notion of rule of law and democracy and being a constitutional republic and all that other stuff, no, not so much when it comes to Native people. There, with Native people, it is clear tyranny. It is clear authoritarian rule. And the thing is that, that it's the Supreme Court that establishes these legal doctrines. It's not legislated. It's, it's not Congress that, that's established these things. And it's not treaties, you know, that are, are negotiated by the president and, uh, and approved by the Senate. No, it's, it's nothing like that. And it certainly has no foundation in the Constitution. In fact, to be clear, the Constitution mentions Native people three times. It mentions us in, first and foremost, in the, in the apportionment clause. And by apportionment, I mean apportioning taxation and, and congressional representation. And what it says is that we won't be counted. They refer to us as Indians not taxed, that, that we are not to be counted for enumeration of, uh, in, in the apportionment clause of the U.S. Constitution. So we're not a part of it. They, they clearly set us outside. Why? Because we were outside. We, we weren't a part of the American Revolution. We weren't fighting England for our independence. That was them, not us. So when they drafted their Constitution, it was clear that we were not a part of it. Now, the other two places we're mentioning it, in it are is the treaty clause, which is an executive authority, and they basically say the president has the, has the power to negotiate treaties with foreign nations and Indian tribes. So we're distinct from foreign nations, but we're on par with foreign nations in the treaty clause. Now, the other place that we're on par with foreign nations is the commerce clause. And in the commerce clause, it says Congress shall have the power to regulate essentially interstate commerce, commerce among several states, with foreign nations and with Indian tribes. Not of Indian tribes, but with Indian tribes. So their commerce with us, they can regulate their people on how they do commerce with us. That doesn't mean that they can regulate the commerce that we do on our territories. And it doesn't, and it clearly doesn't suggest that the, the Commerce Clause was about the framers um, trying to make clear that the that Congress shall have the ultimate or plenary powers, which is what plenary means, ultimate, the ultimate power over all affairs of Native people. No, all, all the Commerce Clause said was that Congress shall have the power to regulate the commerce with Indian tribes. So we are not a part of the Constitution. We're not in it. We're, just, we're mentioned it uh, to an almost, you know, in, in third party, uh, you know, um, framework, but we're not a part of it. And there is no place where we as Native peoples, even independently, have said, okay, we're going to put aside our, um, our national character, our cultural character, and we're going to fully embrace um, being Americans now. Well, for one thing, it, it pretty much was prohibited. Um, although there were, before 1924, there, there were 
um, peoples who had enlisted in the armed forces and that kind of thing. There, no, there was no broad base, okay, this nation is here by citizens of the, of the United States now. No, but individuals who had done performed certain services for the United States were allowed to become U.S. citizens. Um, if the, and these were people who were pursuing that. But in 1924, when they passed the Indian Citizenship Act, there they just did this blanket thing. And, and again, so how does, the, how does the United States get to do something like that? Well, that's what I was addressing in the paper that I wrote and, and what really Peter Jerico addresses so clearly in his book, is that they couldn't automatically make us a part of the United States. In fact, when they passed the, the 14th Amendment, um, which was to essentially grant citizenship, citizenship to the enslaved um, people of the United States, you know, the, all the Africans who were, and, and the black people who were bred in captivity, essentially, to be enslaved. Um, that didn't include us. I mean, it doesn't say black people specifically, but it, but it refers to, to, you know, people who were born in the United States and under U.S. jurisdiction, which we weren't. We were still the, those Indians not taxed, and we weren't, we weren't a part of that. And in fact, in many places in, in the mid-1800s when, when this amendment was added, the United States was waging war against many of our Native peoples. So, yeah, we weren't, we, we, we had not, and we had not surrendered as a result of those wars. There, there were conflicts that came to an end, but they didn't always end with a complete surrender or submission by Native peoples to, you know, to, to be the spoils of, uh, of a conflict with the United States. So there's, there's a lot of things that are not covered very, very well. But when I talk about th these legal doctrines being a part of authoritarian rule, it really literally just comes out of uh, the Supreme Court and specifically the, the Marshall Court of, you know, of the early 1800s. He was the, the chief justice, I think, from like the, the first years of the 1800s and until about until the mid 1830s or something like that. And in that time, he established these three essentially legal doctrines that would essentially become codified in U.S. law without any legislative action. He, he brought in the, the doctrine of Christian discovery as a rule of law, a legal doctrine, one that, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg quoted in 2005 in the Oneida case. You know, so here you have a doctrine, a legal doctrine that is not legislated, no foundation in the, in, in the U.S. Constitution, but gets its foundation from the legal dicta in a Supreme Court case. And, and, and John, Justice John Marshall, Chief Justice John Marshall, was responsible for three really important ones. The doctrine of Christian discovery is, is a significant one. And the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a Jewish woman, you know, who is considered a liberal darling of the court, would actually cite this in footnote number one in her case against the Oneidas, who, by all rights, would clearly be outside of the doctrine of Christian discovery. And I say this because the six nations had a treaty before Johnson's ruling, uh, putting this into law, where, where the president of the United States, George Washington, had agreed in a treaty that his people drafted for him to where they, where they were acknowledging, they were recognizing, acknowledging that our land was ours and the United States would never claim the same. So this idea of the, the doctrine of Christian discovery, which essentially says once we were discovered by white people, Christian white people, that we no longer, you know, that we, we didn't possess the title to our lands. Well, that wasn't true with us. In fact, it wasn't true with anybody. But that, but that legal claim 
that John Marshall puts forward in, you know, in uh, like 1823 would not have survived any legitimate legal challenge, especially from the Haudenosaunee from the Six Nations or, or, or the Oneida Nation for that matter. So you, they just create these things. Now, and that's not the only one. He, he actually jumps upon that and creates a through line where the next case that he has that involves the Cherokee and in, in the, uh, the state of Georgia, he comes up with this notion that the framers never intended to recognize us as, uh, as on par with, with foreign nations. No. You know, yeah, they, they list us right beside them, the foreign nations in the Constitution. But no, they didn't recognize it. In fact, he made it, uh, he suggested that we were akin to domestic nations, domestic dependent nations, and said that we were like wards to a guardian. So this whole notion of the United States claiming to have a, a trust responsibility, and, and, and I've talked about this in the past, so let me, again, uh, explain it. What Marshall suggested was that the United States could pretend to be um, a trustee over an incompetent, unsophisticated, you know, untrustworthy people that were not U.S. citizens either. <laughs> so this is the crazy part is they, they would go on to suggest that the United States could treat us as wards of the state, as wards of the nation. And, you know, go back to, I think, 2014, Paul Gosar down from Arizona, a congressman from Arizona, he literally said this thing in, in a public statement. And he was opposed to, you know, a, a case that the Higuria um, uh, Apache were bringing against the United States or against Arizona and said, well, American Indians are, are wards of the federal government. And he, and he just makes a statement. Now, a lot of Native people got pissed off when they heard that. But we still almost recite or cling on to this notion that the United States has a, has a trust responsibility. Well, you can't say that the United States has a trust responsibility because that word trust is not trust as a virtue. It's trusteeship. That's what, when, when that is being used, that's what they're saying. Or that, and even that's what we're saying. We're saying the United States is a trust responsibility. That essentially is our own admission or you know submission to this notion that we are wards of uh, we are wards to our trustee, the federal government. Now, that was just invented by by again Justice John Marshall. There's no there was no law that was passed that somehow could legitimately suggest that a people who were not citizens of the United States could somehow become wards of the United States? No, there was no law passed. There were no treaties signed where we didn't pursue some surrender treaty, say, can we be your wards? But that's what happened. That's what the United States did. That's how you have something like um, what we now can seem appalled by in terms of understanding what, what the Osage went through in the 1920s when they were the richest people possibly on the planet, at least as a group of people. The United States says, yeah, but they're not competent to handle their own money. So we're going to make white people be their guardians. And we're going to make these people register every month or every payment as incompetence. And that's what you saw. Lily Gladstone playing you know, the part of uh, uh, Molly Burkhart. Yeah. She'd, she'd go in and she says, yeah, I'm incompetent. I mean, just the, uh, just the degrading notion of standing before a white person and say, Yes, I'm incompetent, so can you please give me some of my money to use? That's literally what, what, what transpires there. 
But that's born out of this notion that we are being deemed too incompetent to manage our own, our, our own funds, our own money, our own business. And in fact, it doesn't stop in the 1920s. I've said this before and I'll say it again. The, the passage of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, IGRA, was done with the same mindset that native people could not be trusted, that we were incompetent to run a a, a, anything as sophisticated as a casino or a gaming operation. And of course, we were gonna, we were gonna fall prey to the mob and everybody else, and so, so we had to be treated as wards of the state. And not just wards of the, the nation state of the United States. IGRA basically said, we all had to enter into a compact and share regulatory authority and, um, and really yield regulatory authority to the states that surrounded us. That's the, that's the basis of the, of the whole fight that the Senecas have been going through with the state of New York. This gaming compact. Because not only did this get imposed upon us by the federal government, but they did it with this notion that, you know, that we were beneath the states. So... How, so what authority do, do these laws get passed? Well, that's the next doctrine. The next doctrine, and this comes out of one that's called the Worcester versus Georgia. Again, Justice John Marshall. In this one, he takes the through line of, uh, of, of us having our sovereignty diminished by just simply by being discovered. And in fact, in that first case that I talked about, he actually equates um, conquest with discovery. He refers to it as an extravagant pretension. He says, but if you can get away with it, if you can treat discovery and conquest the same and sustain that position, then it becomes rule of law. So again, this is, this is the Supreme Court establishing laws, rule of law, law of the land, as they, as they called it. That's what John Marshall said. We can get away with treating conquest um, or discovery the same as conquest, if we can pull it off and sustain it, then it becomes the law of the land and cannot be challenged. That's the 1800s. So again, activist judges today, activist judges then. I'm not saying they're still not doing it. They, they certainly are. But I want to bring this up because I, I want it to be clear. There is nothing that empowers the Supreme Court to wield this authority. Now, they aren't necessarily wielding it and calling the, saying that they have the authority. They just have the authority to make it law. But what they did in this Worcester versus Georgia case, John Marshall again, he starts talking about Congress having the power. And this is, again, with this gross interpretation of the, of, of the Commerce Clause. He said the framers intended Congress to have ultimate authority over Native people. That's not what the Commerce Clause says. So this notion of plenary powers, this, once again, is made up by the Supreme Court. They, it's just made up from thin air. There's no constitutional basis for it because even the weak argument they were making. In fact, Clarence Thomas has been vocal about this. Of all people, of all people, Clarence Thomas says, I don't see where there's any constitutional basis for the claim that Congress was intended to have plenary powers over Native people. I mean, he, he shoots down the whole notion that it's a Commerce Clause. So it is not without some conflict that, that the, the Supreme Court has done this. But in doing this, now they can go back to this notion that, oh, yeah, we have rule of law. We, uh, once we gave Congress the power, the ultimate authority to do anything they want, to regulate the meets and bounds of tribal sovereignty, once we wrote that in an opinion and, 
and put it in a uh, and, and used it as a part of a ruling, it again becomes law of the land and cannot be challenged. Well, yeah, it can be challenged and it should be challenged. But see, when I hear people say that it's a problem for, for the Supreme Court to be activist judges and to legislate from the bench, you know, you hear the right say that, and that's why they've stacked the court they were. And so what's this stacked court doing? It's regulating from the bench. In fact, there's a case now, it has nothing to do with Native people, that you probably heard something about. It's this, it's this case where, they're, where Colorado didn't want to put, uh, have, have Donald Trump on the ballot. And they were using, again, the 14th Amendment. Uh, this gets a lot of traction, this 14th Amendment. But usually the elements of the 14th Amendment that says that an officer cannot hold that office if they were involved in promoting or participating in an insurrection. So Colorado said, that's, well, that's what Trump did. We're not going to allow him on the ballot. So it gets challenged and appealed up to the Supreme Court. Now it's Supreme Court. And even the liberal justices, Kagan, Sotomayor, all, all of these, I mean, I don't know what ja you know, uh, Jackson is saying, but, but even the liberal justices are troubled by what Colorado did. And in fact, one of the arguments from, I think, Kagan, one of the liberal justices was, you know, is it proper for one state to be determined, you know, who can and can't be president? Well, one state isn't doing it. Your Constitution, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, it's clearly written. But these judges, again, activist judges, are saying, we're going to concern ourselves more with what it would mean to enforce this law rather than enforce this law. I mean, it's clear that what the, what the law says, but they're not even interpreting the law. They're not even really, they hadn't even really delved into whether um, Trump had legally committed insurrection or participated in insurrection. They, they never even got to that. They're more concerned about what the implications would be. Well, look, that's the problem with the United States election system in the first place. States have all the ability to, to manipulate elections independently from each other. You know, what, you know, so they, how they do the ballots, how they do their elections, how they manage primaries, that's all up to them. Now, they, they're being pressured by the, the major parties, but elections are handled. That's why I talked about earlier about this idea of, of registering to vote. That's all determined by, that's all done by the states. When you register, how soon, how prior, how much prior to the election that you have to register. You know, whether you have to register as, as a given party, you don't just register as, as a voter. You've got to tell the, the <laughs> you've you got to tell them which party you're, you are registering with. I mean, it's, it is really kind of bizarre and, and, it, and it changes from state to state. And then you have states that have all different types of caucuses or primaries or, or none at all or none that are meaningful anyway. So it is, um, uh, it is a bizarre system. It defies any real notion of what people, what the United States claims is democracy. And look, and part of the whole thing with, with how people are counted, how, you know, um, delegates are apportioned, uh, you know, it, it all gets down to this notion that, um, that the conservative states, the rural states, have more power than the, you know, than the states that have larger populations. That's how you have Trump lose an election by seven and a half million votes, and yet, had he squeaked out 35,000 more votes in key places, he could have pull, pulled that election off. In fact, that's how he beat Hillary Clinton. He lost that popular vote by over 2 million votes, but secured enough of the so-called delegates. I mean, it's a screwed up situation. But the courts 
are, are what, what continued to entrench this thing. And of course, you know, they're, they're not going to change it. They're not going to legislate changes. But the courts continue to support the, the overt racism and, and the lack of democracy that exists in, these, uh, in, the, in the election system. So, you know, I, so I mentioned that because, you know, oftentimes, you know, people are led to believe that all the liberal justices are the ones who are really going, going to interpret law for the good of the people and that kind of stuff. And it's the, and it's the conservative justices that are going to try to stick to a strict reading of the Constitution as it was written, when it was written, regardless of how, many how much time has passed. But that's not true. They have their own agendas within the culture wars of the United States. And these justices have been legislating from the bench since, you know, since, the, since this court was created. I mean, I think Justice John Marshall was only the second chief justice of the, of the U.S. Supreme Court. And he clearly created these legal doctrines that are being sustained today, regardless of the challenges. Like I said, how does the doctrine of Christian discovery sustain? How is that even sustained today? Especially when you get, I mean, just so you know, the, the doctrine of Christian discovery is based on church dogma. Now you've got the Catholic Church, the Vatican, and the Catholic, the Pope himself saying, no, we didn't create that. We didn't create the doctrine of Christian discovery. That's the Christian nations of Europe that have just misinterpreted papal bulls and, and some of the, the Vatican documents to create that. We didn't do that. And in fact, we reject it. We repudiate it. See, they won't rescind it. They won't admit that they had a role in it even. <laughs> they want to pretend that it was all a misunderstanding um, with, you know, with obviously greed and intention behind it by the, the Christian nations of Europe. The fact of the matter is, the Catholic Church was saying, we're empowering this to happen so Christendom could be spread. But now they've repudiated it. So now you've got this Christian dogma which the Catholic Church says isn't really Christian dogma, that is the basis for this, uh, this outrageous racist law or, or legal doctrine, and it still plays weighs heavily on everything from land claims to jurisdiction, criminal and civil, all kinds of stuff like that, you know, land use, all that stuff. And in fact, it's, it lies as the main reason that the United States was among four nations that voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I mean, and there's no question about that. I mean, what you have even still today is federal bodies that have, or, or federal government officials that are not part of the legislative process that create these foundations. And most of it comes from the Supreme Court, but not only there. I mean, I think about the decision to vote against the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, that came partially from the national security uh, agencies opposing this notion that Native people's sovereignty would have to be respected. And in fact, the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is really about promoting self-determination. But the United States says, well, when we look at self-determination as defined or, or as, as used, that expression used in this, in this document, we don't mean self-determination in the truest international sense of the word, we only mean self-determination as internal self-determination. And in fact, again, that conversation associated with, um, uh, with, with trust responsibility, I mean, Sam Alito was clear that the United States doesn't have the obligation to, um, to operate as a, um, as a trustee under 
what would be considered quote unquote trust law. In fact, what Sam Alito said, and this is only this only goes back to like 2011. He says Congress may style its relations with Indians as a trust without assuming the fiduciary responsibilities of a private trust, creating a trust relationship that is limited or bare compared to trust relationships between private parties and and a uh, and at common law. So he basically says we can use that language like it's a trust, but it's not. And in fact, the United States as a trustee has no obligation to place its 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 wards in in the uh, as a priority. He says throughout the history of the, of the Indian trust relationship, we have recognized that the organization and management of the trust is a sovereign function subjected to the plenary authority of Congress. Again, plenary powers again. Uh, and the plan, uh, to, and, and it was entrusted to them to divest the tribes of any attributes of sovereignty. I mean, this is what Sam Alito said in 2011, that this was the whole idea of this trust relationship was created to allow Congress to divest sovereignty from Native people. So that's why the United States votes against, uh, you know, against the, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. They're opposed to the idea, not only that we would really be able to govern ourselves, but that we would have any say over our land, our land uses, and, and, and to, if people come onto our territories, the United States and Congress have, have hedged to suggest that when you come into a native territory, you've left the sovereign protection of the United States and you've entered the sovereignty of, of, of native peoples. See, they just, they just won't do that because it defies their national interest, their national interest to strip our lands of, of timber or, or, you know, or water or, or minerals or, you know, fossil fuels, or uranium, whatever it is that they, that they ripped from us for all these, or the land itself. And, and if you want an example of, how, of just how pathetic this notion of a trust responsibility is, you only have to understand what the Cabell suit was about. Eloise Cabell, she was a part, and she, she brought this class, class action suit against the Interior Department for gross mismanagement of everything from, from leases to deeds to oil revenue, all of this stuff. By some accounts, it was between 40 and $100 billion that the Interior Department and its designees had lost of native assets, of, of, of native revenue. I mean, they couldn't even tell some of the people which oil lease was theirs and wasn't, which land, what deed was theirs and wasn't. I mean, this is how much the Interior Department had screwed over native people. The, the Bush administration, this is George W. Bush, had at least floated the idea of trying to settle this thing with, with as much as $40 billion, realizing what a travesty it really was. And that if it goes to court, they were going to they have their asses handed to them. In fact, this, the federal courts had already um, proclaimed that, that, that the Interior Department was, um, had violated so much. They, they were, uh, what's the expression? I can't, I'm losing it here. But, um, oh, that they were in contempt of court. They were cited as being in contempt of court several times. The Interior Department. 
I mean, the entire interior department, not just the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but the entire interior department was being uh, regarded uh, and designated and, and charged with, with being in, in contempt of court. So it was clear this was not going well. So what's the Obama administration does? Do, what do they do? They settled the agreement with $4 billion. Pennies on the dollar. Even if you were only going to use that $40 billion figure that Bush was floating around or that, by some estimates, was the low end of what was lost, it was still 10 cents on the dollar. I mean, it's, I mean, it's an outrageous thing to think that this much could be lost. And, and of that $4 billion, much of it was being used to pay white people to get off land that they'd illegally, illegally occupied. So much of that $40 billion, or $4 billion, I'm sorry, never went back to Native people anyway, went to white people. It went to the administration of the settlement. I think Native people got like an $1,100 check sent to them. That was it. And they're still, it's still really, really muddled. To, to, to this day, there are head rights of the Osage that are not, possessed by Osage. They're, they're possessed by other Native peoples. They're uh, possessed by, by organizations. I think a couple of universities are pulling funds from those oil head rights. That's how mismanaged all of this stuff is. And so the, uh, the idea that the United States has been a, a proper or just trustee of Native people's assets, it, it, it's, it's criminal. It's criminal. And Yet, we still have Native people that'll say something. Well, the federal government has a trust responsibility. No, they don't. They're not our trustee. We're not their wards. So all of this comes from these legal doctrines that the Supreme Court created. And, and of course, they may have been created loosely, I guess, by Justice John Marshall in the, in the early 1800s. But they would be affirmed over and over and over again. I mean, look, when, when the Brackeens were trying to challenge the Indian Child Welfare Act, they wanted to charge, again, <laughs> under, under, I think, the 14th Amendment, equal, the Equal Protection Clause. They said, ICWA violates the Equal Protection Clause. And it was a little unclear. On one hand, they're saying white people are being discriminated against because they can't, they're being disallowed to, to, um, to own, own Native children. They can't take Native children away. They can't adopt them. So, but he was also suggesting that somehow Native people were being deprived of the luxury of having white people as their parents and that it was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. Which, and, and what that essentially says is that, that all U.S. citizens are supposed to be treated equally regardless of, of race or ethnicity. The problem is, we aren't just a race of Americans. I, I would argue that we aren't Americans at all. We aren't U.S. citizens, in spite of their, their legislation that they passed, because they claim to have plenary powers over us. But see, the Supreme Court never even addressed this race issue that the Brackeens raised. Instead, they relied solely on the notion that Congress has ultimate authority. That goes beyond states' rights. It goes beyond constitutional, you know, um, the constitutionality of a law, that Congress has plenary powers over Native, so it doesn't matter that, you know, what the Constitution says. It doesn't matter what equal protection, doesn't matter what the 14th Amendment says, that Congress can create exceptions 
In fact, that's what it's all about, exceptions. That Congress can create exceptions when it comes to Native people. So they never addressed whether we are merely just a race of American citizens, U.S. citizens. No, they didn't even address that. Instead, they said the whole thing was, was fought by, by defending the plenary powers. And you know what? Our people rejoiced on that. On that. Our own people were, were praising that the Indian Child Welfare Act was saved. Well, I said it pretty clearly on the show multiple times. The Indian Child Welfare Act wasn't that great in the first place. Why? Because it never recognized our authority over our own children to decide where a, a native child should be placed. It said that our nations or our nation courts or, or in any way, shape, or form that we, the native people ourselves, should have any role in where a, a, a native child is placed. No. The states were still doing that. The states were still ripping kids from homes. And I'm not saying that some of those kids shouldn't have been removed from homes because with, with, with how much drugs and alcohol have been you know, cranked and pumped into native territories, yeah, there's some, there are pr plenty of unsavory households. You know, of course, that goes across any designation, uh, ethnic or racial or, you know, designation. But our people have been hit hard by some of this stuff. So the states are the ones that have, have these, you know, child protective services. All the Indian Child Welfare Act did was tell the state agencies that they had to put a preference on ch Native kids being placed with Native families. They didn't even necessarily pinpoint or, or, or put it clear how much, how, how or any, or if any authority existed for Native people to decide when a child should be pulled from a home or where a child should be placed. It was still the states that were going to do it. All the federal government did was put our guardrails up for those state agencies. And the state agencies are fighting it. And they're, they're finding loopholes around it. You know, adoptive, adoptive parents, they, they've actually used the Canadian border. So, so a white family here will, will, you know, pull a native child from Canada or vice versa. I mean, they're, they're playing international standards for when a child from one nation is adopted uh, by a family of another nation. That could have been employed, but no. In the Child Welfare Act, it says, no, we're going to put the guardrails up that the state agencies have to follow, regardless of what the international laws have been. See, this is the problem. When, when we start embracing things like this federal trust responsibility or the plenary powers of Congress, look, I realize we're fighting states oftentimes. But if we only fight a state by saying, no, you don't have the authority, only, the, only Congress does, we're, we're backing up this, this illegitimate authority that Congress claims to have. The same authority that they used when they made the Osage have to have guardians and, you know, uh, over their money. The same authority that they, that they used when they declared we were all citizens. The same authority that they used when they passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. And, and a host of other, I mean, look, every piece of legislation the federal government, that Congress has passed, has been based on authoritarian rule in the first place. Now, they can claim that it's rule of law because they're the ones creating the laws, but they had no foundation. They had no authority to create these laws. It came from activist judges on this U.S. Supreme Court, and it gets affirmed over and over and over again. And it gets affirmed not just by conservative judges. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a Jewish woman on the court, cited the doctrine of Christian discovery as her justification for throwing out, you know, for ruling against the Oneidas in, uh, in uh, Cheryl versus the Oneida Nation. 
City of Cheryl versus the United. Yeah, that's what she did. And she cited a couple of other racist doctrines. The doctrine of impossibility. Yeah, that's another one that she, she, she spun on them. She said, you cannot reclaim sovereignty over a territory once you've lost it. That, that, that fits within the doctrine of, of impossibility. She cited that from a, a Yankton Sioux case 100 years prior. Even though 15 years before she ruled, Congress had passed the Salamanca Lease Settlement Act where Congress said the Senecas could reclaim lost land and not only just reclaim it as trust land, reclaim it as original title land. So she ignored what was the reality of the time to stick with the status quo of eliminating native sovereignty, using the doctrine of Christian discovery against the people who were clearly cut out of that doctrine of Christian discovery by the Canandaigua Treaty, the Oneidas. She didn't care. She ignored all that. Instead, stuck with this ancient, archaic, authoritarian rule that was established by the Supreme Court. So, yeah. Activist judges, a new thing? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. But it's what we are faced with. It's what we have to challenge. And my hat goes off to the, the Yakima for being the only nation that I'm aware of that has really stood up against the doctrine of Christian discovery and some of these illegal legal doctrines that, the, that have been spun out of the Supreme Court. And in, in the case that they, they used that, they prevailed. They, they didn't necessarily get a ruling on those issues, but the rights that were protected in, in their treaty with the United States prevailed. And so the, the case against what was called the Cougar Den case uh, prevailed with the help of an amicus brief from the, the nation that Cougar Den operates under. So, look, I want to thank you for listening. You know, again, I, this stuff is important, but it's not understood. And that's why we have so very few Native people having these conversations, and especially where it counts. You know, higher education, secondary education, nobody's teaching this in any of the Native American programs. None of the Native journalists are covering this stuff in this way. So it's me and others. I mean, I'm not the only one, but... I'm the only one on WBI and WPFW. So I want to thank you for listening. Um, I want to thank you for participating in the show. And I also want to thank you for supporting the radio stations that carry me. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.